Hi, this is Lindsay Jacobs. And this is Rachel Weiskittle. Welcome to another episode of the Jero Psychology Podcast, where we talk about all things Jero. Thank you so much for tuning back in to the Jero Psychology Podcast. It's been a little while since we've had our last episode, and I'm really excited about some changes that uh, we've been making to the Jero Psychology Podcast. One of the first changes and the biggest change that I think is going to make this podcast even better is I now have a new co-host, Rachel. Hello. I'm so happy to be here. We have a really, I think, great episode lined up for today. We are talking about the use of telehealth in response to COVID. And we're going to be talking about our own experiences adapting to telehealth and also how our patients and clients, um, what that experience has been like for them adapting to telehealth and uh a couple of clinical tools, uh, clinical innovations that you might be interested in uh, using in your own practice. But before we get started, I want, uh, Rachel, if you'll just introduce yourself to our audience. And I, we always start with the question, how you got interested in working with older adults. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send that question over to you. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. My name is Rachel. I'm a geropsychologist. I earned my PhD in clinical psychology, um, specializing in behavioral medicine at VCU or Virginia Commonwealth University. And um, I currently am finishing up my clinical postdoc fellowship in geropsychology at uh, the Boston VA. So I started out being interested in behavioral medicine. I always knew I wanted to help people with life-threatening illness and helping cope with the medical system and um, helping patients and their families through those processes. And in my training, I was exposed to working with older adults a lot of the time, and I just loved it. And I ended up uh, working in like an inpatient psychiatric facility for only older adults um, and being involved in a few different grants that were providing services in the community for older adults. And I decided that I wanted to focus my entire career with, with working with them. So that's how I got up here. Awesome. I started asking this question at the beginning of whenever I started the, the podcast last year, because people get into Jero psychology through, you know, several different pathways. Um, and it's always really interesting to hear how folks got interested and and actually, when they first learned that geropsychology is a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was funny because I, I got a lot of referrals for older adults in grad school training their clinical training because I specialize um, in both research and clinical work with grief and end-of-life care. And so while it doesn't necessarily, you know, is not limited to older adults, I think that people referred so many grief cases to me and they also kind of uh, maybe wrongly, but like assumed that like older adults automatically fell into this like nearing end of life category. Mm-hmm. And I was happy to to take those referrals all the time. But just the more exposure I had to working with older adults um, and helping them with, with all the different things that they go through, the more I really enjoyed it. Um, so that was an interesting like way that I, I kind of found Jero Psych. Yeah. 
Well, I um, am so excited to have you be the co-host of this show. When I started the podcast last year, I wasn't exactly sure what it was going to look like um, in terms of the structure of the episodes. I had an idea about the what topics I'd like to cover, but I quickly learned that I don't like just sitting there hearing myself talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love our conversations. So I, I think that the audience is going to enjoy it also. And I've been really amazed at how far reaching this podcast has been. I've been able to see that, you know, folks in different parts of the world are listening to this podcast. And I've gotten a couple of messages from listeners, which I really, really appreciate. Um, and as Rachel and I continue to work on this podcast, develop it, um, we would really love to get your feedback, to get your thoughts on future episodes. So at the end of this episode, I'm going to give you listeners contact information for us. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like. And as we move forward, we're always interested in having new folks on the show to talk about what they're most passionate about. And in future episodes, we will be uh, reading some of those questions out loud and seeing if we can answer some questions that, that people might have about GeroPsych. So you might even hear some of your comments or questions in future episodes. Yep, absolutely. Well, Rachel and I are super excited about the upcoming episodes that we have planned. So we have two mini series on the books. Um, the first one that we're going to present to you guys is a, as a mini series on COVID-19 and geropsychology and just the many different ways that COVID-19 is affecting both our work, but the population of older adults itself. You know, we originally wanted that to be like, okay, we know we have to have at least one episode on, on COVID-19, but there's just so much to talk about that we quickly realized that to really give it its due diligence, um, we wanted to split it up. So we have a few episodes on COVID-19 coming for you guys. And then we also have been working on a series of diversity in geropsychology. Um, and that also quickly turned into a multiple episode <laughs> series because we just kept wanting to talk about all these really important things that also kind of were surprisingly difficult to find uh, research literature on in some instances. So we have some really great guest speakers that we're excited to talk to so that we can continue to, to learn about both of these topics. And then we also are excited to share things that we have learned in the process of putting this stuff together. So, Yeah, so y'all have to stay tuned. So, Rachel, why don't we first just start off by talking about what clinical practice has been like since the pandemic? Uh, big changes. It's been <laughs> very different. So, uh, personally, I've been teleworking since, I think, like the first week of March. Is that right? Yeah, that's um, right. So it's been quite a while. So I have now kind of set up a little home office that I do all my work at. All of my patients, like my clinical patients are remote. And so it's either um, video chat or on the telephone. Like everyone else, I bet, like everything has been either on, on Zoom or, or Skype meetings. So that has been, that has been quite a change. 
I've noticed myself and the way that I telework, I will sort of plop myself down in one spot and I'll stay in that spot for the entire day and noticing how that, what that's actually doing to my body. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not so great. So remember to stand up and stretch and move around. I'm trying to remind myself to do that. Yeah. I thought that I would be really easily distracted working from home. This is the first time that I have worked a hundred percent from home. Um, in grad school, when I was doing a lot of research stuff on, on top of classes and, um, clinical work, I would work on the weekends and evenings, but I haven't ever had an experience like this before. But I also kind of hunker down in one place and I have to remind myself to take a walk. And that is really surprising to me. I did not (laughs) think that I would have to remind myself to take a break from work in my own home. I don't really know why that has been. I also have been like, I do like a migration circle around my house of like where I set up my workstation for the day. And it kind of depends on if I am like having, you know, private sessions or if it's like mostly an admin day, but that has been kind of funny to watch myself too, of like, I have different favorite spots to work in depending (laughs) on like the temperament of the day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And, you know, thinking back to what work life was like when we started having all of these policy and practice changes and it every day leadership was learning something new you know, integrating, incorporating the information they were gathering into modifying, revising policies, you know, to try and help control the spread, keep everyone safe, but also to make sure that patients and clients were still being, that they were able to get the care that they needed during that time. It just, I remember it felt very overwhelming. It was just a lot of information to take in, a lot of new things to adjust to, to adapt to. And, and as therapists, we're human too. So we're experiencing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, exactly what everyone else is experiencing, this anxiety that, that can come with the a pandemic and having that on top of just trying to adjust to everything. Yeah, I ended up making like multiple folders in my email to categorize just the it like the huge number of emails we were getting about all the changes, like all the administrative changes, but also um, in like billing changes. I feel like that changed every day or every other day for like weeks straight, like the way that I was uh, having to document things and, and categorize the type of clinical work that I was doing now that it was all uh, virtual. And it was just like a huge cognitive overload because you're also trying to help people manage like the emotions of all of this uh, while also juggling the almost like the behind the scenes, more boring, but stressful bits of it. Yeah. (laughs) And now that, now that those policies and practices, you know, sort of like leveled off in terms of how much things are changing. I'm able to reflect back on the, what the experience was like. And even though like you, that cognitive overload, absolutely. Even though that felt so overwhelming, I'm now, you know, looking back and feeling so thankful for leadership working tirelessly every single day on making changes as needed because that communication, those modifications, you know, adjustments in response to the climate, to the environment, um, I think is just so important. 
Yeah. Well, I'm on a few different listservs and I've also been on a few different meetings of um, geropsychologists across the country. And I've been able to hear how different their experiences have been compared to ours. And it, it is that cognitive overload of all those changes in emails, but at least someone was trying and paying attention and adjusting. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard a lot of stories of no response like that at all. And so then having to like feeling the pressure to speak up yourself about keeping patients safe and, you know, taking precautions and what are the regulations about that and having to uncover or try to seek that information yourself mm-hmm. and how, and I'm really thankful that we, I mean, I, I personally didn't feel like I had to do that. If anything, it was in the opposite direction of like, okay, just tell me what to do. Yeah. <laughs> and tell me when it changes. Uh, so, and tell me what's the most important of all of those changes. <laughs> right. Because that's all I can handle in remembering right now. Yeah. Um, well, um, so we've talked a little bit about like what our experience was in responding to these changes, switching over to telehealth and my own experience, a lot of the patients and clients that I worked with, they preferred telephone over uh, telehealth or the, you know, the video telehealth. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a new experience for so many people to talk to a therapist over the phone for a session. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, Rachel, what, what was your experience and, you know, your, your more specifically your patients, your clients experience with transitioning from, you know, in-person face-to-face sessions to telephone or video? I had a similar and continue to have a similar experience in that um, my patients preferred telephone over video conferencing or video chat. And I was a little bit surprised by that. I don't know if I should have been or not, but it, it has felt weird because the only time that I had talked to them over the phone before was to reschedule or like if they were calling me to cancel or something like that. And so to go from this uh, modality of, okay, we just talked on the phone for a couple minutes and now this is, this is the work. This is what we're doing together for the next hour. And, but we can't read like facial expressions or, or know if they're doing something else. Like sometimes I hear the TV on. So having to kind of like learn the process of, Oh, let's go over some, um, tips to make this the best experience for us as possible. So try not to have the TV on, you know, or watch doing other things, kind of trying to, and having to talk through, let's try to make this as close to what therapy used to be in person as possible, which is difficult to do in your own home. I actually have a patient who always receives my calls. He gets in the car because that's the only private place that he has in his home to do therapy. Um, and so it took a couple weeks for us to figure out that strategy actually. Um, mm-hmm. and so it has been, it's been adjusting. The other interesting thing that's been happening is that I have new patients now that were referred to me after teleworking started and they have never been interested in video chatting. So we are like, I don't know, as of today, I have patients that I have met with them like, six times. And if I pass them in the street, I would have no idea because I don't know what they look like. Um, and that has been a strange experience. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've been trying to do a lot of reading about how to be the best telepsychologist I can be 
now that this is exclusively what I'm doing, um, because what there have are you some, learned? <laughs> well, because well, my, some of the questions I w- went into it with is like, there are so many visual cues that we can pick up on, like some, uh, like uh, eye contact, you know, like if I ask a question and they suddenly don't want to make eye contact with me anymore, that's something that is, you know, in, important clinical information that would then influence the next thing that I say to them. And mm-hmm. now I can't, I can't use that data point anymore in, in terms of that rapport building. And so I've learned that you do rely on like words more often. Um, I haven't found an answer to that particular question. Um, mostly just like the debate of, and the list of all the things that you can't pick up on, um, uh, track marks or like self-harming injuries or um, an increasingly unstable gait. Like these are some things that we collect visually that now we don't have. Um, mm-hmm. And we have to like kind of find them out in circuitous ways. Yeah, it's been challenging. Yeah. And I know when you're building rapport with someone, having those visual cues can be so helpful. This doesn't really compare to building rapport with a, a patient or a client, but I'm thinking back to when I first started this podcast, I would do these recordings over the telephone and I quickly realized that I needed those visual cues from the person that I was interviewing because I found myself talking over them or I would start talking when they would start talking. And so it's helpful to have those visual cues. So for you listeners out there, Rachel and I are not in the same place, but we're doing a video <laughs> chat, but you guys will only hear the audio of this, but you know, it, it, it's hard and it, sometimes it can feel a little awkward, you know, just figuring out where you need to talk. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can. And it, I also have been wondering, is it easier to avoid bringing up difficult things if you're on the telephone in therapy versus in person? You know, is it easier to tell a white lie or something, you know, cause you're not really showing all the cues of not being completely forthright. Is it easier to sidestep that difficult vulnerability space on the phone, especially when we're talking about something that's difficult and maybe uncomfortable. It's a lot easier perhaps to avoid certain things if it's on the phone. I'm really curious what other people have to say about this um, or what other people's experiences or thoughts are on, on what we're talking about. I am too, Rachel. So for our listeners, if you're open and interested in contributing to this conversation, we would absolutely love for you to visit the website, www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com. There's a section on that website, a contact section where you can go in and leave a message. Um, we would really love to hear what your experience has been like. Like whether it's similar questions with telehealth or what you've learned through this process about how your clinical practice has changed. Yeah, because I'm curious if there are some answers to what we're kind of having to learn for, for the first time personally. Yeah. I think that this is a nice segue into talking about what has been coming up broadly for our patients. One thing that has been challenging with clinical work with COVID-19 is having to deal with like varying degrees of belief and risk. So at the, especially at the beginning, I had like a lot of 
patients say, oh, I'm not worried at all. All these masks, you know, I guess I'll use them sometimes, but I really don't think that I'm at risk of this at all. And so what is, you know, kind of figuring out and having to figure out very quickly what my role is in providing feedback to comments like that. That was hard. Yeah. Did you figure (laughs) that out? (laughs) Uh, Still trying. (laughs) Um, Because the other thing that it's turned into is masks and belief in wearing masks or, or various precautions. So not just, so at the beginning, it was more, what I heard more often was, oh, I don't think it's that bad. And I don't think that I will get it. Even if I did get it, I don't think anything bad would really happen. You know, most people are asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. So that was the first kind of wave of me feeling uncomfortable and like, eh, what do I, what do I say back? Mm -hmm. And then more recently it's been, oh yeah, I don't believe in um, wearing masks, go even to the grocery store because it's not going to do any, it's not going to help me at all. Uh, I don't believe that it'll uh, make me more safe. And so I have had really helpful conversations and been reading up on that um, and, and what is appropriate to respond to as healthcare professionals, but also not, again, like hurting rapport or being argumentative or anything like that. Right. Um, do you, do you have a sense of for your, for your patients and clients where they went to get information about the pandemic and what folks are saying about what precautions to take? I'm curious about that. Yeah. So I actually, I incorporate that into my practice now. And with the, there's a, the support group annual that I created with Michelle Milanek. Um, we made a game called fact versus fiction, like COVID-19 fact versus fiction, <laughs> where we say statements that are in the news or pop cultural references, statements that uh, may or may not be true about either COVID-19 precautions or medical information. And so we do this in like a support group format over the telephone or video conferencing. And so people say whether it's true or false, and then we are able to say it's false. And then we also say where we got that information. Like this is from the CDC website. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has been really helpful in facilitating approachable conversations about, well, I heard this, is this true or not? In a way that I hope um, comes off as non-judgmental and a really safe place because there is so much information that has been going around as this stuff has been unfolding over the past few months, you know, especially at the beginning. Yeah. It was really hard to um, kind of tangle through all the information. And so we also wrote in a part in the manual of discussing, uh, I think we kind of enveloped it into this conversation about um, having a news diet. So like limiting your news, because something that we kept hearing clinically was how draining the news was because you, and I felt this personally, and I still feel this personally, that I have this desire to be up to date and learning everything about the um, coronavirus so that I can be informed, but also it's, it's, you know, emotionally taxing. Mm -hmm. And so talking to them about how do you want your news diet to look like and being selective in where you get that news and being intentional about it. 
um, rather than kind of like me getting like sucked into link <laughs> after link after link. <laughs> Uh, and then just learning more and more about all these different things. Um, I I think that those are wonderful suggestions. And um, one of the words that really stuck out to me that you said was intentional, because this has me thinking too, just about what life is like for so many people right now, you know, for folks who aren't working, who are at home with their typical activities that they would engage in, you know, for many people, they can't because, you know, if they were going to the gym or they were going to social hours or those are things that they aren't doing right now and boredom can set in or you just need something to sort of stimulate the mind. And I know for so many people, turning on the television is mm-hmm. that thing <laughs> that yep. they go to. And since the pandemic uh, it's been all over the news all the time, and it's it's almost kind of hard to escape it. And with that emotional component, you're sort of drawn to it, mm-hmm. even though it does drain you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like that idea about being very intentional, like noticing what so, – so first noticing when you're watching the news, what that feels like in the body, what that – what sorts of emotions does that bring up? What thoughts does that bring up? And then making an intention to watch one specific thing for a, for a specific amount of time. And I think that I hear this a lot from my patients that they get their news primarily through the television. While I think from perhaps like younger age cohorts get their news more through either social media or online, like going to uh, a newspaper's website. Mm-hmm. I think there's this also draw to the television for older adults because of the human connection of like hearing other voices. I guess mm-hmm. this applies to everyone nowadays because we're all quarantining and, and socially distancing. But I think that makes it an especially difficult thing to turn off then when you have this human connection in a way of people discussing something that's really important. It's hard to, to turn that off or turn it to a sitcom or something else that's on TV when maybe that doesn't feel as important. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to to focus on that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this sort of leads to the one topic that I had on my mind is this issue of social isolation, which mm-hmm. we know in geropsychology, gerontology, aging research, we've been studying the impact of social isolation on older adults for many years. And now it's affecting people of all ages. Mm-hmm. So it the media is bringing attention now to the effects of social isolation, how it's impacting people's psychological well-being. Yeah. And while it is affecting everyone across the lifespan, there are particular subpopulations of people or even older adults that are drastically affected by it. I'm thinking mostly of... Um, For example, like homebound older adults. So this is a group of people who have a high social isolation, that baseline. But now with coronavirus, a lot of them aren't getting the same kind of medical aid that they are used to getting. And they're not able to be visited by their family. And these main sources of contact that they usually have, even though they already have a high social isolation, that is now taken away as well. And it's 100% isolating. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's, it's especially difficult. And that also makes me think about, too, the population of individuals who have dementia who go to day centers for that social engagement and also for caregivers to to get respite. This has got to be just an incredibly stressful time for them. The person with dementia not being able to get out and interact with others, the caregiver not getting that period of respite that's just so needed. And that has to be for the caregiver and the care recipient create a very isolating feeling. Absolutely. It's very difficult to not have any breaks in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're exactly right that all these resources for older adults who are overall more socially isolated than other populations, the resources that are usually available for social engagement are, are closed, just like most of the other things are. And I think it's also perhaps a little bit more difficult for older adults to find ways of replacing those resources. So for younger people, they may be able to switch to having like game night with their friends over Zoom. Mm -hmm. Or I just, you know, went to a baby shower yesterday where we all (laughs) attended um, over Zoom and we played like a game it was like a multiple choice game that you use your phone with and things like that. But for older adults, not being as familiar with other resources, it may be especially difficult to deal with these shifts in social availability. Mm-hmm. I have encountered a number of people who, older adults who have been rethinking their decision to not get internet at their home, to not have a some sort of device like an iPad or a smartphone, because before they might not have had a need for that. But now there's a need just in order to be able to see their friends and see their family members, see their grandchildren. And something else that has been coming up that I've been seeing a lot clinically is uh, people who have past substance use um, disorders that even if they have been in remission for a really long time and haven't really felt it be threatened in any way for a while, now being stuck at home, whether they have like alcohol or cigarettes available, you know, anything like that, it's now really a lot harder to to stay sober or to, yes. to say no to it. And from other kind of psychologist colleagues, I've heard that this is very similar with, with eating disorders, with uh, like being at home and not being able to distract oneself or to engage in like any kind of routine the way that mm-hmm. we typically do. So all these things are, are coming up that are, are really tough. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, with, so with, the need for and requirement of physical distancing and businesses being closed, you know, organizations where folks might have gone out and um, gotten some of that social interaction. Those are closed, but now the grocery stores and liquor stores, convenience stores, mm-hmm, <laughs> those are the only things. Out, yeah. Because those are open. <laughs> so it's not just that you're stuck at home and not able to occupy yourself. It's that the only things that are open are places where you can get those things. Yeah. That's a good point. Worry has been another major thing that that has come up in my practice. Patients and clients worrying that they'll get COVID and then also that their loved ones will get COVID. I know it's been 
you know, particularly tough for older adults who have children and grandchildren who are on the front lines. They're, they're frontline workers and they're so concerned for their safety. And it, it, that worry can just feel, just be overwhelming at times. Yeah, I have patients who are really worried about catching COVID, but also who have had family members who do have it. And then feeling helpless and worried and frustrated because they are not able to help or be present physically for those loved ones in the way that they normally would be able to help out if, if they were sick. And so the worry of just not of, of how people are, are going to, to be and if they're going to be able to get through it, but also being restricted and not wanting to expose yourself. That's been really hard. Yeah. Well, I really want to talk about this COVID telehealth support group that you put together. Because in this, you're sort of addressing all of these things in some way. Yeah. Well, so because of all these things that we're talking about, I just started thinking there has to be a way that we can address the social isolation part, the worry piece, and we have to adjust our practice to be able to fit the needs of what's going on. And so um, I developed this manual and, and wrote this manual with Michelle Milanak, who I work with in the home-based primary care team. A lot of our patients are, are homebound. So as mentioned, they are especially vulnerable to COVID-19 infection, but also the social isolation piece and worry because of those um, really high risks that they face. So specifically, we developed it for older adults who are isolated to be implemented in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. The group is an eight-week group that can be implemented over video conferencing platforms or telephone. It's really whatever works best for the participants or the clinic needs. We wanted it to be flexible in that way. And so we included components of like acceptance and commitment therapy, problem solving therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy uh, to address like social isolation, problem solving, and brainstorming, as well as like worry and teaching a little bit about anxiety and worry. And as mentioned before, the news or fact-based information and kind of providing older adults with a safe place to discuss you know, what they're hearing in the news about COVID-19 as all this stuff kind of unfolds. Each weekly session is structured around five activities. So it's like a check-in. So seeing how everyone is doing and how everyone's family is doing. And then a teaching section where we just have a different topic of the week. And then skill building. So maybe some mindfulness if we're targeting anxiety or worry, but also skill building in terms of like communication and learning about ways to connect with other people. And then there's this like kind of free form discussion part and then goal setting and wrap up is the way that we end. And every goal is uh, we, we give them a optional homework assignment that has to do with social connection. So like write a letter to a loved one or try FaceTime for the first time if you can and, and things like that. So we, we wrote this up in really fast because we knew, I mean, so much was happening that we wanted to put it out there for practitioners to use as quickly as possible. So I think we sent it out to different listservs, I think mid-March. And so it spread 
really fast, actually. It's been really well received. So now we're getting emails from people all over the world telling us uh, that they've started using the manual for support groups. And it's been really exciting. So we have this awesome email chain of Jero psychologists who are leading these groups at their respective sites where we're all learning together how to handle you know, clinical work with older adults during this, this crazy time. And so that has been very personally rewarding as I'm able to kind of float questions and offer support to other people who are, are kind of doing the same roles that we are. So it's, it's been really nice. That's so cool. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like for the patients, but I think that it also has kind of been a nice community building thing for me to feel like, I can ask questions to other geropsychologists in, in doing the work that we're doing right now. Yeah. Oh, and I bet, you know, I know that connection with other clinicians can also help with burnout. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also um, like some when difficult things come up during sessions, mm-hmm. having a place where other people are leading this exact same group and and being able to ask them if it has come up for them and how they handled it. I feel like it's making me a better, a better clinician mm-hmm. to be able to learn from them. That's really awesome. So what have you found to be the most challenging part or the, the most challenging topics that have come up in, in group? I would say probably like the politicalization of uh, COVID-19 and COVID-19 precautions like kind of like mask wearing or social distancing and people bringing politics, like participants bringing politics um, up as a topic with that and just having to navigate those conversations as the facilitator of the group while everyone feeling safe and supported, but also setting limits to help make sure everyone feels safe and supported regardless of political beliefs. That's something that has come up. And I've heard from a few other people that that's come up too. We have gotten some feedback uh, from participants that they wish that they just had more talk time, like kind mm-hmm. of enough with these activities. There's, there's all this structure that's so great, but really we just want to talk to each other because we're lonely, which mm-hmm. makes a whole lot of sense. And so we, we have kind of been more flexible with that of just being a little less structured in, at some, some sessions. Yeah. This also made me think too um, of another question For example, I'm wondering if one of the patients in the group brings up the topic, you know, my loved one just tested positive. They're having difficulty breathing. I'm struggling with feeling bad because I, I can't help my loved one or, you know, my loved one was just admitted to the hospital or something like that. How much flexibility is there to sort of shift what what you had planned for, you know, the topic to be that day? to match what the participants on the the call, what their, you know, more immediate issues are. Yeah. I think that that would be completely up to each facilitator individually. And that I believe that it should be as flexible as needed to meet the clinical needs. You know, Mm -hmm. the resource was really, or this manual was created to fill a gap in in the availability of a way to talk about these difficult things while also providing support and social support for older adults. And if something big like that comes up for a participant, then 
I mean, I mean, if, yeah, it would be up to the facilitator, but I would be completely okay for that to take precedence over whatever was written for that day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like this group was created to be a, a time-limited closed group. We wrote in that it can go either way. Uh, we chose to do it open, an open group, and we did have some people join in as time went on, and that went well. And the way we wrote it, every session has a repeated blurb about like the rules of the group that you can go over if you want to. And, you know, just that like everything's private and please don't, you know, please what happens in group stays in group. Try not to have other people in the room with you when you're in group, um, different kind of telehealth considerations. So if it is open, if people choose to run it as an open group every week, they can choose to review those, those rules and suggestions. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but it's okay if people had it as closed as well. So, Rachel, where can we find your protocol? You can find it um, on the Jero Central website at www.jerocentral.org. They have a list of COVID-19 clinical resources, and they have a great list for clinicians and telehealth resources, and it is one of them. So I think this might be a good time to bring the audiences, the listeners' attention to the Jero Central website. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the website, I would really encourage you to go there, take a look at all of the resources and guidelines that they have listed. And Rachel, you're right. They put together this list of COVID resources for clinicians. And there's some resources in here for older adults uh, and caregivers as well. They put it together so quickly. And I was really just amazed at how at how quickly all of this came together. But there are some really great resources on here. So not only does it host Rachel and Michelle Mullinek's COVID telehealth support group protocol, but there's also links to APA resources on pandemics, APA guidelines for the practice of telepsychology, telehealth resources. There's also some just really helpful tools on here. For example, there's some handouts that you can print out and give to your patients or clients that show, describe how to use their mobile devices for social connection. I also like their list of activities that you could offer older adults that have to do with um, social connection or just education, entertainment that maybe they haven't been exposed to before. So like they have a list of links for um, virtual museum tours or live animal cams of different zoos. So you can like watch the otters play or watch the giraffes walk around. And so that might be something that you could, could suggest a patient put on instead of the news if they, if they want to feel like, connected with, with something outside of their own home. And I have to admit that I've clicked on those and there's some really cute animals on there. <laughs> I like the otters the best. So that was why it was the first one that came up to my mind. <laughs> so I too have watched those. They're pretty good. <laughs> and there's also resources on here for older adults and caregivers who don't have internet or a, a smartphone or an iPad. They have 
for example, on here, you can listen to poetry, listen to recordings of poets on phone a poem. It's the 1970s poetry hotline. <laughs> that is so cool. That is so cool. I should call, I'll call that soon just to see. <laughs> and then there is a link to suggestions for social activities that you can um, do with loved ones at home. Just all kinds of really great resources on this Jero Central website. So we will include a link to the Jero Central website in our show notes for this podcast episode. I also wanted to just briefly share the uh, a coronavirus anxiety workbook. It's a self-help workbook that I know, Rachel, you had actually come across. And when you were doing your literature review and review of materials as you were putting together that COVID uh, telehealth support group. I thought this was so cool. So it is made by the Wellness Society, and it's something that people can print out and use for themselves if they wanted to. It's a PDF, though, that if you open it uh, in your web browser, you can click a bunch of links that are incorporated into it, which is really cool. So they um, touch on a few similar themes of like how to manage anxiety during this time. And they have a list of like good news newsletters that I really liked a lot. And they have links to that. And they do talk a little bit about like how to plan your information diet in a way that's more in depth than what we cover in, in the support group when we address that topic. The other really cool thing about this anxiety or coronavirus anxiety workbook is that it's in a lot of languages. So it's offered in English, um, Spanish, German, Dutch, Turkish, and Chinese. Another clinical tool uh, that I have found helpful in clinical practice is this face COVID acronym, because as a therapist, I'm really drawn to using acceptance and commitment therapy uh, and other mindfulness-based approaches. And face COVID is something that Russ Harris put together. There's actually a five-minute video clip that he created that there's a link to it on the Jero Central website. But FACE COVID is an acronym. FACE, F stands for focus on what's in your control. A is acknowledge your thoughts and feelings. C is come back into your body, being in the present moment. And E is engage in what you're doing. And then the COVID part, C is for committed action. O is for opening up. V for values. I for identify resources, and D for disinfect and distance. <laughs> like that practicality component as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all of the resources that we've talked about today on this episode are going to be listed in the show notes. And if you have listeners, if you have any thoughts, experiences you'd like to share, please feel free to reach out to us at www.thegeropsychologypodcast.com and at us <laughs> on Twitter at The Gero Podcast. Stay tuned. The next episode, we're going to be talking about disparities and discrimination in the COVID era. And you won't want to miss this. 